Speak to us, Lord, in the waiting, the watching, the hoping, the longing, the sorrow, the sighing, the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. A New Testament reading taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, beginning with verse 7. The word of the Lord. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. After the uh, global economic crisis began in the middle of 2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides among formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. One author explains the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his firm after it had collapsed, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. A friend said this Bear Stearns thing, it broke his spirit. They were men who had climbed to the very top of human civilization. They had it all, and then the thing that they bowed down to, that they sought, that they worshipped, it failed them. And they could no longer see any point in going on. They worshipped success. And success is a God that will never, ever, ever forgive you when you fail it. We're going to be looking at a man in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. A name that will be familiar to you. A man who lived for success. He would lie. He would cheat. He would manipulate in order to get to the very top. But before he could crash... God himself orchestrated a crash of a different kind because God loved him and called him. The one who would crash into Jacob's life would leave him forever changed. It was 20 years before the passage we look at today that Jacob had encountered God, the God of Abraham, the, the true and living God, at a place called Bethel, which means the house of God. And now it's about to happen again but in a much more disturbing way. Jacob has been leading his family and his servants and his entourage 
back home to see again his brother Esau, the brother he, he robbed and manipulated and stole everything he had from. And he's not expecting it to go well. In fact, he knows his very life is at risk as he goes to his estranged brother. And so he stops the night at Bethel, the place where God had spoken to him previously. This is Genesis, the 32nd chapter, beginning in the 22nd verse, the word of the Lord. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok, that's the river. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched or dislocated as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. What do we see here? First we see Jacob the manipulator. Jacob had been called by God. From the womb, God had decreed that the, the, el that the older brother Esau would serve the younger brother Jacob. Jacob had heard from God at Bethel 20 years before. Jacob was called by God, but he was always scheming. He was always deceiving. He was always manipulating in order to get power. He had used Esau's starvation against him to barter for his birthright in order to have food. He had deceived his father by pretending to be Esau to steal his father's blessing. Even here, Jacob has sent his entire family, servants, retinue, children, grandchildren, everybody up ahead in front of him on his way to meet a brother who might want him dead, putting them in harm's way in order to protect himself at the back so somebody could come and say, ooh, it's not good, you better go back. He's a manipulator. Jacob remained in the back. He wanted to put distance between him and anything that might go wrong. What was he living for? He was living for success. He was living to make a name for himself, to be on top of the totem pole. He wanted the wealth, and he wanted the wives, and he wanted the status, and wanted the honor and the esteem in the eyes of others that, are, that come to you when you are the top of the totem pole. And, and he had no qualms about lying or cheating to get what he wanted. We see Jacob, the manipulator, but we also see someone else. As Jacob, the manipulator, is suddenly all alone on the edge of a river in an arid climate in the middle of the night, 
someone else who at first is unnamed arrives, we see, as Hosea tells us in chapter 12 of that prophecy, we see the angel of the Lord. It's a struggle at a time of great fear and insecurity. You know, his brother Esau probably wants him dead so far as he can imagine. He would, he would have traded places. He'd stolen everything. Jacob's now returning, aware that he may not get a warm welcome. He, he's expecting anger and violence, and now he's completely alone, not knowing what's happened to his children, his grandchildren, his, his wives and servants who have gone ahead, whether they've reached Esau, whether they've been received, or whether they've been slaughtered. He does not yet know. And so we read that Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And it's a man that Jacob tries to understand who it is, and eventually he comes to understand who this is when he says, I saw God face to face. The prophet Hosea says of Jacob that he struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name of renown. Now realize the text here is compressing into just a few short sentences. What the text says lasted hours. He said, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. That's a 10-hour, perhaps, wrestling match against somebody that he doesn't know. This is a fight to the death against an unknown assailant, completely alone in a cold desert with no one to come to your defense. That meant hours of hand-to-hand -hand combat, continually beating down and being beaten down at the point of complete physical, psychological, and emotional exhaustion. In his book, The Son of Laughter, uh, Frederick Buchner offered a fictive historical retelling from Jacob's perspective, one that maybe captures the reality of what that night-long battle against this unknown assailant might have looked or felt like, the things that might possibly have gone through Jacob's mind. And in it, he speculates about who or what this enemy might be. In the words of Jacob through Buchner, out of the dark, someone leaped at me with such force that it knocked me onto my back. It was a man. I could not see his face. His naked shoulder was pressed so hard against my jaw, I thought he would break it. His flesh was chill and wet as the river. He was the god of the river. My bulls had accosted him. My flocks had fouled him. My children had peed on him. He would not let me cross without a battle. I got my elbow into the pit of his throat and forced him off. I threw him over onto his back. His breath was hot in my face as I straddled him. My breath became gasps quick as a servant. He twisted loose and I was caught between his thighs. The grip was so tight I could not move. He had both hands pressed to my cheek. He was pushing my face into the mud, grunting with the effort. And then he got on my belly with his knee in the small of my back, and he was tugging my head up toward him. He was breaking my neck. He was not the god of the river. He was Esau. He had already slain all of my sons. He had forded the river now to slay me. Just as my neck was about to snap, 
I butted my head upward with the last of my strength, and I caught him square. For an instant, his grip loosened, and I was free. Over and over, we rolled together into the reeds at the water's edge. We struggled in each other's arms. He was on top, then I was on top. I, I knew that they were not Esau's arms. This was not Esau either. I did not know who it was. I did not know who I was. I knew only my terror and that it was dark as death. I knew only that what the stranger wanted was my life. For the rest of the night, we battled in the reeds with the jabok roaring down through the gorge above us. Each time I thought I was lost, I escaped somehow. There were moments when we lay exhausted in each other's arms, the way a man and a woman lie exhausted from passion. There were moments when I seemed to be prevailing. It was as if he was letting me prevail. And then he was at me with new fury, but he did not prevail. For hours it went on that way. Our bodies were slippery with mud. We were panting like beasts. We could not see each other. We spoke no words. I did not know why we were fighting. It was like fighting in a dream. Yet he outweighed me. He outwrestled me. But he did not overpower me. He did not overpower me until the moment came to overpower me. And when the moment came, I knew that he could have made it come whenever he wanted. I knew that all through the night he had been waiting for that moment. He had his knee up under my hip. The rest of his weight was on top of my hip. And then the moment came and he gave a fierce downward thrust. And I felt a fierce pain. It was less pain I felt than a pain I saw. I saw it as light. I saw the pain as a dazzling bird shape of light. The pain's uh, beak impaled me with its light. It blinded me with the light of its wings. I knew I was crippled and done for. I could do nothing but cling now, and so I clung for dear life. I clung for dear death. My arms trust him. My legs locked him. For the first time he spoke, he said, let go of me. The words were more breath than sound. They scalded my neck where his mouth was touching. He said, let me go, for the day is breaking. And only then did I see it, this first faint shudder of light behind the farthest hills. And I said, I will not let you go. I would not let him go for fear that the day would take him as the dark had given him. It was my life I clung to. My enemy was my life. My life was my enemy. I said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Even if his blessing meant death, I wanted it more than life. Bless me, I said. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said, who are you? There was mud in my eyes, in my ears, in my nostrils, in my hair. My name tasted of mud when I spoke it. Jacob, I said, my name is Jacob. It is Jacob no longer, he said. Now you are Israel. You have wrestled with God and man. You have prevailed. That is the meaning of the name itself. I was no longer Jacob. I was no longer myself. Israel was who I was. The stranger had said it. 
I tried to say it in the same way he said it, Israel. I tried to say the new name. I was to the new self. Uh, I, I was. I couldn't see him. He was too close to see me. I could only see the curve of his shoulders above me. I saw the first glimmer of dawn on his shoulders like a wound, and I said, what is your name? But I could only whisper it. Why do you ask me for my name? We were both of us whispering. He did not wait for my answer. He blessed me as I had asked him. I do not remember the words of the blessing or even if there were words. I remember the blessing of his arms holding me and the blessing of his arms letting me go. I remember as blessing the black shape of him against the rose-colored sky. I remember as blessing the one glimpse I had of his face. And it was more terrible than the face of dark or of pain or of terror. It was the face of light. No words can tell of it. Silence cannot tell of it. Sometimes I cannot believe that I saw it and lived, but that I only dreamed I saw it. Sometimes I believe I saw it, and that I only dream now that I live. This figure, the angel of the Lord, who appears throughout the Old Testament, always coming to the defense of God's people, always turning them back to the Lord, this figure that, that, that we don't see in the New Testament, but we do see in the Old Testament. This is the encounter that changes Jacob's life. This encounter with the angel of the Lord who is both a man and God. Before this encounter, Jacob was sending his family ahead of him. After this encounter, he goes ahead and goes in front of them to take the, the, the vulnerable position of leadership in the front, trusting from now on that God will be his strength, God will be his defender, and, 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 and God will intervene. Before, he had lived a, a life with very little faith in God. He trusted himself and his instincts and his, and his cunning. But now he hungers for God. He's holding on to the angel of the Lord, saying, no, don't go. He's not wanting him to leave. He's saying, no, bless me. I need your blessing. He's hungering for God. And he gains a new humility toward humanity. He had planned to approach his brother with all sorts of bribes and deceit. But now, instead, when he approaches his brother, he bows down in humility. Three times before Esau, the brother, the older brother, who he had robbed and manipulated. In the face of horrors yet to come, Jacob will continually hold his peace. And this was the encounter that changed him forever. How is that possible? What is it that he learned? We learned this. He learned that if you want to walk with God, you have to walk with a limp. God is our enemy when we are at enmity with him, must defeat us in order for us to have life. We read, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. He dislocated his hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. This, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the one who is both from God and God. This is the one in whom you see the face of God and live. This is 
a Christophany, a, a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. John Calvin says that whenever you see God intervening through whatever means as, as a redeemer of God's people, you see the pre-incarnate Christ at work. Buchner says, God, the beloved enemy, our enemy because before giving us everything, he demands of us everything. Before giving us life, he demands our lives, ourselves, our wills, our treasures. Only remember the last glimpse we have of Jacob limping home against the great conflagration of the dawn. Remember Jesus of Nazareth staggering on broken feet out of the tomb toward the resurrection, bearing on his body the proud insignia of the defeat that is victory, the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God himself. God, our enemy, must defeat us. He must defeat our pride, defeat our self-reliance, defeat our self-righteousness, defeat our agenda. He has to defeat us in order to gain us as his own precious people, in order to capture our hearts. And this means, friends, that in the Christian life, God's power is not shown in our strength. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. If you want to walk with God, you have to walk with a limp. Jacob had struggled with his brother Esau in the past and won. He struggled with Laban and won. He struggled with his father Isaac and won. And now, for the first time, Jacob is the victim who can wrestle no more. He can only cling. Cling to the angel of the Lord. Cling to God. Jacob is injured and aware of his weakness. How many of you have gone through a period of great hardship, of suffering, of loss, where things are taken from you that you will never see again? People are taken from you that you'll never see again. And you, you, you go through it, and you get to a point of, of such hardship and suffering and weakness and exhaustion, and yet you have, by God's grace, watched God, watched your Savior Jesus meet you right there in the suffering, not to make it go away, but to hold you, to cling to you, to love you, to point you to his great love as one who suffered for you. Jesus' office, we say, is at the end of your rope when you can go no further. Some of you know in recent years that, that I've gone through a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse, a lot of things have been said that ought not have been said that were not true. There have been attacks. There were periods where I would cry every night, um, and yet in the midst of those tears, uh, Jesus met me there. In the midst of the loneliness, in the midst of the weeping, my God, turned my tears from tears of sorrow to tears of joy as I felt his love in a way that I had never felt it before. I had always said that I believe God loves me. As a cognitive act of the will, the Bible says it, Jesus promises it, I trust him. But for one of the first times in my life, I could feel God's love and delight in me. And friends, I wouldn't trade that suffering for anything. If that's what my soul needed to know the smile of my father and to feel his love, affection, and commitment to me, then I would not trade it for anything. I would gladly go through anything to make sure that I never lose that again. If you want to walk with God, you have to walk with a limp. 
Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, what Riley read earlier from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, where Paul says, to, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, he had seen the third heaven. And I'm not even sure what that is, but it was impressive. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger, that's actually an angel of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. We don't know what the thorn was. We could speculate there's no point. It was suffering. It was painful. A thorn in your flesh hurts. God was taking him through a period of, of great injury, of harm, of suffering, of sorrow, of discomfort. And, and, and it was both something that God allowed to happen and the devil was behind it too. He says it was a messenger of Satan. And he prayed, and he prayed with faith in Jesus. And he said, Lord, take this from me. And he did it again. Lord, take this from me. And he did it again. Lord, take this thorn from me. And then Jesus spoke to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power will be made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then, only then, am I strong. God's power in our weakness. God glorified in our limp. Notice how, how, how now that Jacob is weak, Perhaps for the first time in his life, he truly wants God. He wants to know God. He, he asks for his blessing. And even when God doesn't tell him his name, God still gives him the blessing. Here we see the power of the pre-incarnate Christ. God blesses Jacob and gives him a new name. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. You have struggled with God and with men and have overcome only after he is defeated has he truly overcome. And then God blessed him there, we read. Now Jacob knows who he is. His encounter with God was also an encounter with his own profound weakness, his own profound sin, his own wicked character as a manipulator, crawling over everybody and disposing of everybody in order to get what he wanted. Jacob came to realize who he was. Flannery O'Connor says, to know oneself is above all, to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against the truth and not the other way around. And now, in his weakness, Jacob has God. He has a relationship with God. And now he is Israel. The deceitful Jacob is now the Israel who limps along as a servant of God, living by faith in his Savior. He prevails in his limp, in his weakness he now prevails. Jacob had built his life on success, but then he crashed into the angel of the Lord. He crashed into God. He crashed into the pre-incarnate Jesus, and everything in his life changed. Here is the one in whom we can see the face of God and not die. The one to which the Hebrew scriptures pointed us all along. Jacob has a new story to tell. No longer is it a story about how successful he's become through his great craftiness and cunning. No, his new story, his new testimony, is that I saw God face to face. 
and yet my life was spared. What a better picture of the gospel of Jesus, that in Jesus, we with all of our sin, with all of our shame, all the ways we had declared our independence, attacked him, denied him, disobeyed him, turned around and done it again, because we meant to, with all of that, he is still a God who through Jesus says, you can look upon me and not be condemned, but indeed have life. The mystery of the gospel written throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The coming of the one who is the savior, the God-man, the one who is God in the flesh, incarnate for us. Jesus who saves the world not by his strength. Jesus who saves the world by his weakness. Through his self-sacrificial leadership, saving the world by the loss of power. This was unheard of in the Roman world. The historian Garrett Fagan summarizes how uh, Roman culture in, encouraged the, uh, encountered the early church and, 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 and the culture within which the early church grew viewed values of strength and weakness in very specific ways. He writes, ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent, and large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved, and resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount. And yet, something that never could have come to them were it not from God himself, here we see Jesus, God in the flesh, in Roman Palestine, saving the world in a way that was completely counterintuitive to everything the Roman world could see, saving it by weakness that his power might be made perfect. It's the ministry of the cross that he gave up his life in order to be victorious. He lost in order to win. He gave up himself, self-sacrificial love, in order to gain what he wanted most, which was all of us. This is love. The love of the second person of the Trinity. The love God showed to, to, to Jacob. The, God, the love that God had showed to, to Abraham. The love he would show through the prophets and through Moses. And ultimately, the love that would be born in flesh within the person of Jesus. The one who became human for our sake. The one who makes it so that we can see God and live. Not only in our weakness. The late John Stott shared the following story from 1958 when he was leading a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. Stott has been called, uh, on his death, the BBC called him the Protestant Pope. He was perhaps the most prominent uh, 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 Christian leader globally, um, perhaps second to Billy Graham, but perhaps not. Um, in fact, um, when uh, I, it was Time Magazine uh, 
had its list of 100 most influential people on the earth. Uh, John Stott was listed in there, and it was Billy Graham who wrote the article. Uh, the late John Stott, 1958, university outreach in Sydney, Australia. The day before the final meeting, John Stott received word that his father had passed away. In addition to the grief of losing his dad, Stott was also starting to lose his voice. Here's how Stott describes the final day of the outreach. He writes, it was already late afternoon, within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission, so I didn't feel I could back away at that time. I went to the Great Hall and asked a few students to gather around me. I asked one of them to read, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A student read these verses, and then I asked them to lay hands on me and to pray that those verses might be true in my experience. When time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow ways from Matthew 7. I had to get within a half inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in a monotone. And then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response, larger than any other meeting during the mission as students flocked to come forward to dedicate their lives to Jesus Christ. He wrote, I've been back to Australia about 10 times since 1958. And on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? I jolly well do, I reply. Well, they say, I was converted that night. You see, it was God's power in our weakness. Let's pray.